Hey there, Recovery Nation. Producer John here. In this week's episode of Full Potential Now, Ted investigates eating disorders, their potential connection to addiction, and more. Join us as Ted speaks with attorney-turned-therapist Sheethal Patel of Noble Tree Counseling in Chicago, Illinois. To learn more about Sheethal and her work, visit nobletreecounseling.com. But first, our interview. Don't go anywhere. According to the National Institute of Drug Abuse, women in recovery from a substance use disorder and PTSD reported concerns about their weight, shape, and eating at a higher rate than the general U.S. population of women. One study that explored initial motivation for drug use found that 36% of women in treatment for methamphetamine use disorder initiated meth use to lose weight. In another study exploring weight concerns in women recovering from a substance use disorder, 45% of the women reported concerns that weight gain could trigger relapse, and these concerns were associated with higher levels of body dissatisfaction, dieting behaviors, bulimic symptoms, and weight-related drug use expectancies. So in my clinical experience out in the field, I would definitely have to say that eating disorders connected with substance abuse definitely flies under the radar. I only really became aware of this when I worked residential treatment programs and when staff would report to me as a supervisor that they noticed that certain, mostly women, clients would not eat much for breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Oftentimes we found out later that they had a past history of struggling with an eating disorder. So what exactly is an eating disorder? And what could a lawyer turned therapist tell us about it? I am with the absolutely wonderful Sheethal Patel, and uh, she is a therapist in Chicago and works with a variety of disorders, one of which is eating disorders, and that's been on my mind lately as we've kind of rolled along with this podcast, talking about people who have addiction issues, getting in the recovery, co-occurring issues like, for instance, anxiety, depression. She works with all that stuff as well. But one of the things on my mind was there's a certain percentage of people with addictions that also struggle with eating disorders. So I was sitting down with producer John, of course, and I thought, you know, let's open this up. Let's get somebody who understands this a little bit more than I do or the average person and, you know, the average schmo walking down the street and let's discover more about this. And so um, we are so blessed to have her on the show today. So we just want to extend a warm welcome to you, Sheethal. I'm really happy to be here and to be able to, you know, talk to listeners about uh, my experiences with eating disorder, um, eating disorders in the world of therapy. Yeah. So why don't uh, you talk a little bit about, you know, our listeners always like to know where you're from and maybe even how you got into this business of of counseling, because I know everybody has a unique path sometimes of how they end up being a counselor. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, So I've been living in Chicago for almost 20 years now. 
Um, being a therapist is actually my second career. I am actually a former attorney. Um, I practiced law for about seven years, uh, general civil defense litigation, and then more specifically employment defense litigation. Um, and then I, I actually went a process myself where I saw a career counselor who specialized in working with lawyers who were looking to change their careers. And it turns out that, you know, storytelling and being able to help others, um, through psychotherapy was really the field that stood out to me in terms of working with others. I also volunteer for a nonprofit organization called Women Everywhere, um, which is basically a group of um, attorneys and lawyers who are dedicated to programs that benefit women and children. And so through that work, I really found the work much more meaningful. And so I was looking for something to give me the of connection to be able to work with clients one-on-one. And then through that career counseling, I eventually ended up going back to school um, and working for an agency. And now I own my own practice called Noble Tree Counseling in downtown in Chicago. Wow. So a lawyer converted into a counselor. You're probably like the first person I've run into that has ended up in the counseling <laughs> field. <laughs> and I think that's super cool that, you know, you got involved on a nonprofit level and sort of, it sounds like got your feet wet and then kind of like trusted the path. Yeah. Women everywhere was something that I, you know, that helped me, I think, get more commute, more connected with the legal community in a way that was outside of work that was still connected to giving back also other feather, you know, fellow lawyers at that point. And I'd been with the organization. I've probably been with it for about 12 or 13 years. And that was on a volunteer basis. And the more work that I did, I think, you know, social work ended up being something that really fit in terms of my values. And I was able to turn it into a career, which I feel really, really grateful for and really lucky. Um, I happen to be really active in the room, so I do listen. But for me, you know, being able to share with clients skills and teach them and resource them is part of what makes me really active as a therapist in the room. Um, I'm trained in a number of different interventions. So I think talking through those and how to apply skills in real life is part of the day-to-day work. So it's just not just like sitting down and listening, but there's that component. But for you, there's another stronger component, which is like, all right, let's listen, let's make sense of it, but then get into some action around getting things better. Would that be accurate? Right. Yeah, I would say I was trained primarily as a behavioral therapist, um, particularly from the agency that I worked in, um, where the focus was eating disorders and behavioral changes. Um, And then I also worked in the mood and anxiety program. So I think that's why skills and psychoeducation is something that is so important to me as a therapist, because clients will want to work towards goals. And for that, you know, they're only with me an hour a week. So, you know, the other 90 some hours a week to make changes are the responsibility of the client. And so I feel like part of my role is not only to guide them and, you know, provide, I think, suggestion, validation and listening and things like that, but also to give them the tools to be able to make the changes that they want in their life. And sometimes they're really concrete behavioral goals, whether, you know, it's related to isolating, creating a social network, or it's reducing eating disorder symptoms or trauma symptoms. Um, Sometimes, you know, eventually it's thinking about career changes. Okay. Well, let's dive deep into eating disorders. And what is an eating disorder? I mean, I've been a therapist for a few years, and <laughs> I don't think I've, 
I probably miss picking up on it, I think, when I look back at my career in the early 90s and got better and better as I was around more professionals who specialized in it and attended a few workshops here or there. Um, And everybody kind of almost, I think, thinks of the classic anorexic person that's super ultra skinny and they're not eating anything. And I think like that sometimes probably gets promoted into the public as that is what an eating disorder is. But I'm just wondering if you could just in your own experience explain what it is so that the average person could really kind of get a a little bit more in-depth understanding of it. Yeah. Um, I think you made a really important point about, you know, part of, I think, eating disorder awareness is learning that it's not just kind of those stereotypes. Like you said, I think anorexia is probably the most common eating disorder type that people are aware of, the restrictive type. Um, but eating disorders look different and that's important to know that eating disorders look different for every person. So it's not that stereotype of disorders only, you know, are, are connected to women, right? Eating disorders are across, you know, across the spectrum. So we're not just looking at the gender binary. It's women, it's men, it's in the transgendered community. It looks different for everyone. So there's different features of eating disorders. I would say that the that we know that disordered eating is really about your relationship with food. So rigid food patterns, it's really about the control of the patterns. So noticing behaviors like secrecy around food, weight fluctuation, um, frequent trips to the bathroom, avoiding eating with other people, um, noticing shifts in mood, Right. So that's why the secrecy piece is really important, because one of the key features around eating disorders is the secrecy. And that's what keeps people in eating disorders for such a long time. Almost kind of like similar to like other addictions that I mean, not saying it's the same, but like we know with alcohol and classic drug addiction, it's the denial, keeping it a secret when it's getting out of control, trying to hide it. And so, I, I mean, I don't know if a parallel can be a direct parallel can be drawn, but it seems like there's a real like similarity there. Absolutely. Can you tell us a little bit more about like, I, I think of like, for instance, I, uh, I have a 18 year old daughter. She dated a wrestler and I had really never even known really what wrestling is. And we sort of got brought into this like wrestling culture through her relationship with him And then I've talked to other parents of boys who've been on the wrestling team and this whole thing about cutting weight, that sort of thing. And and it's almost like really fly. What I've discovered is I started diving into the research around this and it seems like boys really, it kind of goes unrecognized in adolescent boys. And then I was hearing these stories about how much weight these young guys can drop for wrestling. And I almost wondered, is that like an eating disorder. Is there eating disorders that that sort of like are around maybe a sport like that that parents really don't even recognize as an eating disorder? Absolutely. I think part of what you're talking about is, like I said, kind of opening that awareness that there's not just that particular type that we're aware of. Eating disorders, especially in adolescence and then in high school, parents can really look out for particular, you know, sports where weight or body So it's really about kind of the concern or the obsession with body shape or changing a body shape. So that's why anything like wrestling, right, gymnastics, um, sports where, you know, weight tends to be an emphasis or body shape or there's this 
real emphasis on being able to shift your body, you know, even like your muscle content, right. In order to perform. So then it all becomes a relationship with food. And so that's when the relationship with food becomes disordered. So whether we give it like that specific label of this is a restrictive type, this is a binging and purging type, this is, um, you know, a both. So there's lots of different types of eating disorders. I think the piece to really recognize, and you mentioned it in terms of like alcohol as well, is it's really about the relationship with food or lack thereof in order to control emotions. So... I, I love that point because that, that really makes it more simple. Like, for instance, in the last podcast, I was interviewing um, a specialist in sex addiction, and she really, even despite all the different criteria, she really identified that as really a core function is what is your relationship? Like, for instance, we were talking about like porn addiction. What is your relationship with pornography? What is your relationship like um, with sex? And it's almost like this is the next thing that we transfer over is like really at the core of it is what is your relationship like with food and how are you, you know, what are the dynamics of that? And does that like generally, is it to say like, does it lead down an unhealthy path or a more healthier path? And then if it's unhealthy, how would you know, like, like, let's say I'm a young person, um, how would Mm -hmm. I know it's like sort of sneaking up on me if that's even, even if the if that even applies. So if I'm like an adolescent, for instance, girl, I'm 15, how would I like figure out like, oh, is this like kind of going down the wrong path for me? Well, I think that's, that's a really important point because we live in, you know, there are all of these cultural experiences that we have not only connected to food, right, but there's social media and there's that socialization as well as genderization and that emphasis on body shape and body type. So I would say if you're looking, you know, one of the questions that I ask clients when I do assessments around eating disorders is, you know, let's kind of look at, for example, what percentage of the day do you find yourself thinking about um, food? What percentage of the day do you find yourself thinking about body shape or body size? So some of those pieces are around really the overemphasis of body shape equaling worth. So we can attach it to food, right? Because food becomes the goal, right? So it's really about like the rigid patterns of food. So are you starting to categorize things, you know, in like, these are healthy foods, these are unhealthy foods, these are good foods, these are bad foods. So black and white thinking is one really concrete way to assess for yourself as well. Like, do you self-categorizing things in that way to be able to, you know, discern for yourself, like this is okay. The problem with that pattern is over time, it gets really connected to our emotions, right? So if I'm, if I'm experiencing painful or uncomfortable emotions, then I'm using my relationship with food to be able to manage those pieces. That's why I think really similar to the person that you said that you talked to about sex addictions, it is about the relationship you know, whether it's with sex or with food. But what I also talk to my clients about is that it is about the food, but it's not about the food, right? The piece that we attach to in terms of controlling those painful emotions, but there are obviously other underlying issues that are really connected with it. Like whether it's perfectionism, which is connected to shame, or it's how do we find healthier, more, you know, productive or helpful coping mechanisms to deal with uncomfortable and painful emotions that happen for all of us. It's almost using like food as a way to alter your mood on some capacity. 
Right. Just like alcohol. Interesting. Interesting. I, I don't know if I quite thought about it in that, in that way, but it really makes more sense to me. According to the National Institute of Health, eating disorders are illnesses in which people experience severe disturbances in their eating behaviors and related thoughts and emotions. People with eating disorders typically become preoccupied with food and their body weight. The National Institute of Health in 2017 identified some key risk factors for developing an eating disorder. Eating disorders frequently appear during the teen years or young adulthood but may develop during childhood or later in life. These disorders can affect both genders, not just one although rates among women are higher than among men. Like women who have eating disorders, men also have a distorted sense of their body image. For example, men may have muscle dysphoria, a type of disorder marked by extreme concern with becoming more and more muscular. So, like, when we think about an eating disorder developing... Like, mm-hmm. is there people that are more at risk for developing an eating disorder than other people? Because I've, like, I remember back in the day in my 90s, um, one of the first clients I ever saw um, was an adolescent girl and her family. And it turned out she, mm-hmm. I mean, ironically enough, this is like 25 some years later, but ironically enough, now we're talking about this, but she identified as having an eating disorder. And then I ended up working at this clinic with maybe three other adolescent females because they didn't have any other counselors. Um, And they threw them in with the intern and they thought, all right, we'll supervise you, Ted. And so to be honest with you, as much as I thought I was like trained, I was kind of, to be honest, flying by the seat of my pants, of course. But then what I learned about all four... (laughs) But what I learned about all four was they all had a sexual abuse history to them. And so, yeah, so I started looking a little bit at the research there. And I was like, oh, there's like a risk factors. I mean, physical sexual abuse, neglect, it always like increases the risk for any substance use disorder. But I wondered if uh, you have any knowledge or any opinion on, on that piece of things and in any other risk factors that might, pe- might make people more susceptible to developing an eating disorder. Well, I think the comorbidity rates, you know, and I also work with a a lot of clients who, you know, have experienced complex trauma. So there are definitely connections with folks who have experienced things like trauma or may, you know, have an addiction as well, occurring disorder, whether it's related to, you know, alcohol or drug use or things like that, that can also be connected with, you know, an increased rate of susceptibility with eating disorders. However, because eating disorders are about our relationship with food and our relationship with food starts from day one, right? Potentially anyone who is in a situation where, I mean, that's the tricky part about, you know, not just eating disorders, right? But mental disorders in general, part of it we know can be genetic, there's hereditary components, but then there's also that huge environmental factor, right? So who are the people in your life who have been modeling or influencing how you use food? And because I said, you know, it's cultural, right? It's a social experience. We meet friends friends out for dinner or we meet friends for lunch or coffee. You know, food is such a big part of our, that once it gets attached to how we cope with those painful emotions, that's why it's hard to pin down necessarily, right? Like, eating disorders really come from because it's complicated. We get modeled some of that from within our family of origin, 
how do you cope with painful emotions? And is food part of that, right? So do you see that then with some of the clients you work with that you might have a young person um, and then you look at their parents and maybe one of their parents have an eating disorder too? Or is it not really what you see? Like in terms of that, yeah, the parenting influence. Yeah, I would say within, you know, family relationships, family of origin or within the family in general, you know, what to look for. Because when, when we talk about young people coping with eating disorders, it's not an individual problem. We look at eating disorders as a family problem, right? Because it affects the entire family. So to, to point it out and say, like, so-and-so has the eating disorder, if we just send that person to a treatment center, everything will be okay. But that's not how it works. That's part of why, you know, eating disorder treatment needs a multidisciplinary team. And so part of that will often be family sessions or bringing in the family. Because there can be patterns of disordered eating within the family. And then if you dig a little further, right, we can see that there are other ways that people have used to cope with pain in the past in families, right? So you know that from your work with addictions, whether there's alcohol addiction in the past, or there's been like a suicide attempt in the past, other people with undiagnosed, you know, mental illnesses, whether it's depression or anxiety or severe mental illnesses, all can, all of those can be different ways of coping with food. And sometimes we can see that physically, right? Whether it's, you know, through something like binge eating disorders, uh, or it's something that we, you know, that we find that young people can hide as well, particularly if they're performers, right? Like you asked about some of the risk factors. So if they are, you know, young people who are in sports and things like that, they get really pushed to perform. And so if those patterns of eating get really rigid, then those are things that we need to look at as well. But that's why the parents are so involved, right? That's part of eating as a family is part of the family unit. They're going to come back and eat with your family. So part of eating disorder work is treating the family and doing family therapy when possible as well through something like binge eating disorders, uh, or it's something that we, you know, that we find that young people can hide as well, particularly if they're performers, right? Like you asked about some of the risk factors. So if they are, you know, young people who are in sports and things like that, they get really pushed to perform. And so if those patterns of eating get really rigid, then those are things that we need to look at as well. But that's why the parents are so involved, right? That's part of eating as a family is part of the family unit. They're going to come back and eat with your family. So part of eating disorder work is treating the family and doing family therapy when possible as well. People with anorexia oftentimes view themselves as overweight, even though they are dangerously underweight. They typically weigh themselves repeatedly, severely restrict the amount of food they eat, and eat very small quantities of only certain foods. Anorexia has the highest mortality rate of any mental disorder. While many young women and men with this disorder die from complications associated with starvation, others actually die of suicide. In women, suicide is much more common in those with anorexia than with most other mental health disorders. Researchers are also finding that eating disorders are caused by a complex interaction of genetic, biological, behavioral, psychological, and social factors. Researchers are currently using the latest technology and science to better understand eating disorders and the treatment of them. One approach involves the study of human genes. Because eating disorders run in families, Researchers are working to identify DNA variations that are linked to the increased risk of developing eating disorders. 
This holds promise for future treatment of eating disorders. Brain imaging studies are also providing a better understanding of eating disorders. Our researchers have found differences in the pattern of brain activity in women with eating disorders in comparison with healthy women. You know, could you talk a little bit about like bulimia and like what that actually looks like to just the average person? Yeah. Um, so the the different eating disorder types, you know, restricting type is the one, like I said, is the most common. And then so bulimia is sort of what we're talking about in terms of like a purging type. Um, bulimia can also be a binging and a purging type. So there it can be both, but they can also be two separate things. Okay. So the other piece that can go along with, you know, any type of eating disorder is compensatory behaviors, which is what we would call purging as well. But you can also engage in purging. Like when I say overcompensatory behaviors through overexercising. So that would be a way of purging all of the calories. So if you're oh, binging, yeah. purging is it can, you know, the purging can be actual like vomiting is one form of purging, right? But then we know that there are other forms of overcompensatory behaviors that people engage in, whether it's diet pills or laxatives, uh, not other types of purging, but other types of behaviors that connect with controlling the food relationship. So that's what I mean in, in the sense of like, I think there's a lot of secrecy because there's a lot of different ways to go about it. Yeah, I was just thinking about that. It really kind of like clicked here. With this idea that, you know, I'm thinking about the person that eats a bunch of food, goes in the bathroom, throws up as the classic purge, right? But then you're saying sure. there's actually another way of doing it. You could actually eat a bunch of food and then right after do a bunch of exercise. To, right. And to try some, to burn it off. And you, in, do people ever not vomit? Or I know a lot of people associate like it's bulimia, they vomit right after they eat. Is there more of this? exercise thing that takes place than we know of or what's your thoughts on that that's interesting to me well that's why i separated them into like there's a purging type yeah um right so there's a purging type that could also look like exercising so there's in that one way so there's also when folks binge and i want to be clear about what the definition of a binge is because i think sometimes you know people use that term a little bit loosely like oh i ate like you know, two cupcakes and I binge, right? Three cupcakes. The definition of an actual binge is the amount or quantity of about two to three meals. So that's really important, I think, to distinguish. You may think that you, you know, ate a lot and you may colloquially call it a binge, but the actual definition of a binge would be about the quantity of about two to three meals. And the feature that we're really looking at, right, is the lack of control. So if you say like, meaning, you know, let's say it's not a, it's not a full binge. It's I ate like three cupcakes, right? What what we're really looking at is impulsive overeating. Is it about the lack of control that you had? And then is there a compulsory behavior to try to rid yourself of the calories because there's guilt or there's shame or there's a lot of self judgment, right? Which is connected, of course, to changing your body shape, but it also has to do with your emotional experience and your, your struggle in coping with painful emotions, including discomfort and the shame of feeding yourself, right? That essentially feeding yourself and nourishing yourself is healthy. Yeah. All this is like, this is like, I've grown more and more into this podcast because like I learned so much. So like, it's actually like really kind of connecting the dots for me a little bit. From like, you know, you kind of think of the classic Thanksgiving. Everybody comes over and overeats, mm -hmm. typically. 
oh, maybe I binge ate on Thanksgiving. But really what you're saying, I love the fact that you defined it as like, it's like, what, three meals, two to three meals over what mm-hmm. you would normally eat. And then, but then there would be this yeah. connection of feelings connected to it. Like right. I did it, I couldn't control it, I did it, and I feel crappy about myself, and now I got to like work it off somehow, and then I'm going to feel better. Is that kind of almost like what fits into the cycle of it all? That then you begin to associate that, you know, you have these uncomfortable feelings, I'm going to eat, it maybe temporarily takes it away, um, but then I feel crappy about it, so then I start feeling bad, so then I got to do some exercise, some compulsive behavior, and then... I get those same feelings again, but they're uncomfortable. So then I begin to associate like dealing with food becomes sort of like the alcohol on some level. Exactly. But the big difference. Because the people for relief, right? Yeah. And the big difference being that you have to sit down. And this is what I, I've come to know with, with eating addictions is like, it's like no other. Because like alcohol, you don't have to sit down and have to drink a beer every day. Food, exactly. you have to sit down with it every single day. So I think mm-hmm. it's like out of all the addictions and, and disorders, I mean, that is like super difficult to deal with. So, and just totally like, tell me if I'm, if I'm off my rocker here on this. I'm to- totally going for this rant here on this whole thing. But I'm like thinking like, like when you, you just fall, it's, it's like a cycle that, I could see how it would just continue and continue and continue if you're unable to bridge the gap of being able to deal with those feelings on an honest level or develop some sort of healthy coping mechanism. If I'm unable to do that, I would probably fall back into it if it sort of has been in service to helping me deal with my feelings. Right, because it's managing them, right? To some extent, it it works because you're, you know, a lot of folks disorders are in denial, you know, say like, well, everything's fine, right? I'm still functioning. I'm going to school, whether it's, you know, it's high school or college or, you know, I'm functioning at my job. And that's not really true, right? Because eating disorders can kill, right? They, they aren't healthy. And I think that's something important in terms of eating disorders to be aware of. You know, it's not something that we treat lightly. People can die from eating disorders. They, you know, they damage our bodies and not just our esophagus thing or creating those esophageal tears, but it impacts the heart. And so it is so important to understand that we do need to break the cycle. I mean, you know, I've treated folks with eating disorders at any age range, right? Whether it's, you know, in, in twenties to fifties to sixties. And so I think I say that in terms of, you know, the pattern that can really continue unless there, there is a seeking of treatment in order to find healthier ways to cope with the painful emotions and the discomfort that we all experience Yeah, in our lives. Right. And then, so whether, and I think you, you actually, you made a really good point in terms of eating disorders and how it could be, you know, related to other addictions like alcohol because there is a thing that we call eating disorder that we call disorder swapping or just behavior swapping to be clear. So, you know, often when I've treated clients with eating disorders, especially at a higher level of care, what we notice is sometimes this thing called behavior swapping comes up. So instead of using food to control my anxiety or depression or, you know, confusion or apathy being in treatment or this whole change process, then I might use something else. Mm. Right. So whether it's gambling or it's overspending, right, it's basically shifting, 
shifting the control to something else. Do you know, and I don't know if you can answer this question, but I'm really curious about it. Do you know if there is, you know, like in addictions, we always talk about the reward pathway, um, how dopamine plays on the mechanisms in the brain. Mm -hmm. And is there a chemical brain, like, thing that occurs when somebody, like, for instance, um, binge eats? Like, is it like, I mean, is it sugar? Is is there, uh, like, is it connected to the reward pathway? Or is it maybe not or sort of? I I mean, I, I don't even know if you have the answer. I'm just curious about it. You know, I'm not sure. I think it could absolutely be connected to the reward pathway. It makes sense that if you are engaging in something that is pleasurable, right, just like, I mean, you know, the term binge watch TV, right, because you get that dopamine hit like, oh, I can just watch the next. Right. The problem with food is that at some point we kind of move past that pleasure piece and then it becomes the lack of control. And so now the relationship with food is controlling you rather than you getting the food. It becomes so rigid in one's mind. Right. These are good foods. These are bad foods. And then I have to get relief. So I think that's that's why that cyclical pattern that you were talking about really spoke to me, because there's that relief piece. So. Indeed, you know, I believe that there is a chemical imbalance that occurs in the brain when all of these pieces are going on. And importantly, you know, especially with a restrictive type, undernourishment really changes your brain chemistry in the sense of the brain's not getting food, right? So I'm not saying you're, you're changing your brain altogether, but you're not feeding your brain. So even your decision-making, you know, shifts or being able to, you know, troubleshoot problems or problem solve, focus and concentration, things like that. Yeah. Do you know um, if there's any differences when you look at ethnicity with eating disorders or like the LGBT community? How does it look or does it look differently? Is it higher incidence, lower incidence? Like what's been your experience just professionally on that level? Um, I don't know what the statistics are in terms of whether eating disorders impact certain communities or not, partly because a lot of the research that is done are about folks who are self-reporting eating disorders. Okay. Um, because there is so much secrecy behind eating disorders and there's a lack, you know, there's a lot of undiagnosed eating disorders. We could say, you know, under these studies, these are people who participated in the studies, right? But because there's an undiagnosed, you know, community of folks who struggle with eating disorders, whether it's in the transgendered community um, or with, you know, adolescent boys or things like that. And especially early on, right? Like we don't know any of those statistics in terms of like adolescents if they haven't been diagnosed or they're not participating in some of the research programs. So my experience has been, you know, working in agencies, you know, I have treated probably, I can say for sure, more women than men, but that's also because of who comes to the agency for treatment. So I would say that's the same thing in outpatient. Um, I have a more diverse population in, you know, in outpatient also because I to choose you know, the clients that I work with. And for me, diversity across the board, whether it's connected to sexual orientation or gender or color or race is really important. So I treat who needs help and who's appropriate for an outpatient level of care. Um, Within agencies, it often becomes about access, right? Who can afford these treatment programs, which can be incredibly expensive. So if I was fortunate enough to become more aware of the fact that I have an eating disorder... 
and could drum up enough courage to reach out to ask for help. What would treatment look like? How long would it take? And are there success stories? Can people actually heal themselves from an eating disorder? Somebody recognizes they're struggling with an eating disorder. What typically, what is like a treatment episode look like? Because I know um, I've supervised in a few different places and I'm looking back at my residential days supervising and we used to have a lot of people who maybe would come in with an opiate addiction, methamphetamine addiction, um, mostly a lot of methamphetamine, which kind of makes sense that they would have a co-occurring sometimes eating disorder. Because when you think about amphetamines causing weight loss, that sort of thing. And I just remember we, um, one facility many years back, um, I had to kind of question a little bit about, this was maybe 10 years ago, like, what are we doing here? Because we would have somebody who came in with a methamphetamine, opiate addiction, and then a week into it, you know, because they're eating at the facility, people are Mm -hmm. taking note and they're like, well, wait a second, they're not eating anything. Yeah. Um, and so then I would be involved in these clinical staffings where then people would be like, um, how are we going to treat this while they're here getting sober from methamphetamine or opiate addiction? But now they have an, we've just discovered they probably have an ongoing eating disorder. And yeah. you know, how can we even treat that? Are we even equipped to treat that? So oftentimes um, we did typically two approaches. One would be if they were open to it, we would send them to an eating disorder clinic like Wisconsin. We're talking about like Rogers Memorial. Um, They get the full assessment. But we did that enough that there were some cases, a lot of cases where the person would make the appointment but not show up or go to the first appointment and bail. They're like, I'm not staying here. Forget it. And then there was this other approach we developed where we would refer them to an eating disorder specialist outpatient therapist to see if yeah. maybe they could get the ball rolling a little bit while they're still in residential treatment. And I'm not exactly sure what happened with these people, you know, because it's 30 days and they're typically were done and they never really did any follow-up. So I was just curious about like what typically would a like treatment experience look like for somebody? And I realize there's a variety and different caveats to the whole experience, but what typically could somebody expect? Sure. Um, I'll start, I mean, I'll start with explaining kind of levels of care and kind of work my way from the top down. Um, you know, so people can kind of become familiar with what are, what does it mean when we even talk about levels of care? Like when I say I treat clients at an outpatient level of care. So the highest level of care would be inpatient hospitalization treatment. Right. And, you know, I would say that generally there's, you know, a level of where the medical emergency is going on, right? Whether it's nourishment or other symptoms that have come out through an untreated eating disorder for a really long time. Um, you know, sometimes that becomes from dehydration. Like there are a lot of clients who may have to be hospitalized from time to time, even at an outpatient level for dehydration, if they're restricting fluids. Okay. So by far the most care will happen in an inpatient level of care. So then after that is the residential level of care, like just like you mentioned for alcohol. So where there's like full treatment, nurses who are on staff, psychiatrists and other doctors who are a part of the treatment team, um, 
registered dietitians who are the most, you know, one of the most important pieces to any eating disorder treatment team on an outpatient level. I really can't stress the importance enough of working with registered dietitians. Um, and so, you know, part of the benefit, I think, of a residential level of care is that have that entire multidisciplinary team that clients have access to. And residential treatment really depends on, you know, the symptomatology of the client and what they're bringing in when they present. So not just about where they're at in terms of the weight, but what are the other symptoms that are showing up as well. It gets more complicated, right, when there's comorbidity. And so if they're not only with an eating disorder, but they've got substance abuse issues and things like that, that may also and a stay. So the, the length of stay at residential really depends on the client's progress and what they come in with in terms of um, presenting problems. So it's, it's not quite as clean as like a 30-day stay. It depends on the client's progress because they cannot step down to a PHP level of care. So after residential is what we call PHP. So PHP stands for a partial hospitalization program. And so PHP can look like five days a week to seven days a week for a client where they may stay um, at a particular facility that is maybe connected. So that would often call like a boarded PHP or supported living center, um, also called like transitional living sometimes. Oh, so they do the there treatment are- and then they have them living there, which kind of makes sense with an eating eating disorder. Sort of because, like, um, you want to closely monitor, like, you know, like they're eating, like, so the secrecy thing, they could, like, go out and be, like, binging and doing all sorts of things, and you would never know that. I mean, obviously, they could probably still do it at the facility, but it would make sense that you move from more structure to less structure and not just turn them loose on an outpatient basis, see you once a week, and you're good to go. Right. Right. That's why, you know, the step down process is so important to be open to and to comply with in terms of what your your recommendations are from your treatment team. So once you're stepped down from residential, and I should have clarified that residential means that you also stay at a facility where you're having all of your and there's a lot more structure, like you mentioned. And then in PHP, there's a couple of different options depending on the treatment program about living in transitional living or supported living, or you may be living at home and then you come to treatment, you know, five or seven days out of the week to go through a program. And so PHP typically tends to be like a full day program. So you would you know, ideally be having all of your meals there. There would be supported meals. There are registered dietitians who are there and obviously um, licensed therapists who are a part of the treatment team at a PHP level of care as well. And I can totally see, and this is similar to what I've run into in the addiction world, how people would be totally like freaked out about this whole thing. Because, and what I mean by (laughs) this is like, I've been living in secrecy with my eating disorder and now like just coming to terms with that is one thing you might have maybe loved ones reaching out to you family members partners that sort of thing we need to get you help all right all right i'll I'll go get help i'll go get help a lot of times what we see in residential treatment is it was always somebody else bringing the person in um nine times out of ten they were just doing it because they wanted to save the relationship where they were living that sort of thing um and then it's it just seems like such a huge inexperience thing like to face is I put myself in the shoes of somebody like this, which I can't even probably even come close to, but I just think of as close as I could come, I'd be thinking like, no, I don't want to do residential treatment. I just want to handle this on an outpatient basis. I have it under control. Um, Let's do that first. 
Um, but <laughs> I don't know if you see that. I'm just kind of relating my experience yeah. to to that initial reaction of coming to terms with it. I I a hundred percent agree with you. I I understand it can for clients like it could be a daunting procedure, right? Like the levels of care that I've mentioned. Um, even from PHP, there the next level down to step down to is what we call IOP. So that's the intensive outpatient level of care where clients are there maybe three days a week, sometimes five days a week. They typically live at home. Um, but again, they're coming to treatment for like groups that may be three hours, right? And then there's the outpatient level of care. So that's where I treat clients who are more stable, who would be more stabilized in their eating disorders, who would need to be seeing a registered dietitian as well as a primary and or a psychiatrist at the same time. So I, I mean, I completely get that. It could potentially feel really daunting. And, you know, I have worked with clients over time in eating disorder treatment where there is so much hope and there's progress and there is growth because there are so many more ways to live your life openly rather than feeling like it is confined and restricted to your relationship with food and being within a certain body shape or body type, that that becomes the focus of one's life instead of all of these other, you know, beautiful possibilities that could be a part of that person's life goals and a part of their actual values. Because the values don't be, you know, kind of surface level. It's about my, you know, my body. Often when I work with clients, values can be about anything, right? Whether it's self-respect or it's community or it's spirituality or it's giving back, um, or it's, you know, working with animals, um, that those are really the values and the eating disorders really distract us from our true values and beliefs and goals and connection. Part of recovery, right? Whether it's eating disorders or it's addictions is that we don't live on an Island. It can't happen alone, that we need connection and eating disorders keep us disconnected and in a place of blame and shame rather than in a connection and empathy and compassion, both for self as well as as others. And that doesn't come when there, there's not a place for self-love and healing to grow. And whether you start that as in like, okay, I'm, I'm going to at least explore a treatment program, right. And be open to an assessment. And I get it it can feel daunting and there's so much possibility for growth once that cage is opened. Yeah. Oh, I just love, I love the stuff that you're talking about right now. Cause it's, it's like hopeful. So I think about like everybody thinks about like the actual eating disorder. It's like this thing I have to overcome, blah, 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 um, or an addiction to alcohol, opiates, cocaine, whatever. But what I've discovered is it's really about like, I want to be too cliche here with this, a, you know, this old AANA sayings of like being comfortable uh-huh. in your own skin, like totally. actually being comfortable in your body so that mm-hmm. you can begin to experience who you truly are and always have been. Right. Coming into connection with the true self that has been really fragmented. And, you know, I think that these, unfortunately, these unhealthy relationships with food or with alcohol, they become a distraction from one's true life purpose. The hard part about eating disorders in terms of like the social media component, right, is they lead you to believe that you need to live a certain way. Right. And then eventually, once that food becomes a control, it becomes like living in an armor. And because you are the person that created the armor, the only person that has the keys to unlock it is you. But that doesn't mean that you can't reach out for support and guidance. 
to do that because it's a process of shedding. It's a process of taking off each layer and committing to that every day so that you can move towards your purpose, which will give you more hope and growth and connection and self-love than being controlled by food or fitting into a certain shape ever will. Oh, I love that you know, the analogy of the armor around the body and that you would begin to have maybe get some guidance to pull maybe some of the pieces off over time and really kind of get back to who you truly are, which would seem almost like freeing on some level rather than restrictive. Absolutely. I think it's a level of personal freedom that probably most of us don't really realize, you know, actually exists, but it really does. The process of taking off the armor. And I think sometimes it's the uncertainty, right? That scares most of us because I talked with a lot of clients who often ask that question of like, well, I'm not really sure who I am. If I'm not my eating disorder, right. Which is important to externalize and remember, like I'm not my eating disorder, then who am I? Right. And this question can become like, what is my identity? Instead of being scared of that, that's such an opportunity to like, your mind open and, you know, open your heart up to the possibilities of, well, how do I, how do I actually want to create this life that's worth living for, right? Like design a life that I truly get to create rather than one that feels like it's trapped for me. If I'm living within the confines of not only the eating disorder space, but what other people's expectations are, because that's what keeps us in shame. That is well, I mean, I just absolutely love that piece. I, I just love it because I think in the field we talk so much about dysfunction and I have this, I have that. And I've seen that same thing happen in residential treatment and in the addiction world that they get clean and all of a sudden it's like, well, who am I? And then oftentimes what ends up happening is the relationships they're in, they really call sometimes into question. They're like, why was I with this person? Not to say that everybody breaks up, but um, it was something I noticed because they're like uncertain. And what they know for certain is going back to using, they know because that's so rigid. It's so predictable. Yeah. And it provides this like, un, I mean, from the outside, we say it's a dysfunction stability. But in, in essence, for them, oftentimes, it's just this stability. I know that. I've done that. That's where my identity is. Yep. Yeah, so letting go. I'm so, at the end of that street. Yeah, so what kind of uh, successes do you see in treatment? Like, what could somebody maybe even hope for if they were thinking about, they're out there listening, um, they've taken a little bit in, they're maybe, they've never even thought about getting treatment. What would be some successes that you've had with clients? And maybe what would be the first place they could maybe start? Um, I mean, client successes are so individual, right? I mean, I've worked with so many clients over the years. Like I said, I worked, you know, at an agency specifically at a higher level of care, you know, so being able to see clients move from a place of, again, it's all about the food and my meals look like this to, you know, now being at an outpatient level of care where, you know, I've seen clients who have been in spaces where they don't have literally any other social connections than either the person that they live with, or if they don't have any, the only connection that they have is going to work to spaces where, you know, clients are now, they have a full and a rich social experience and they're going to groups you know, eating disorder support groups. Like I can't say enough about the importance of community groups and being 
when you're struggling with an eating disorder, where they're talking about their experience, they're inspiring others, right? So it's not just this connection to self that can growth. It's our connection with others. That's kind of for like this greater good of the community, because then that allows all of us to grow and reach our full potential and get connected with true purpose, Right. For and all I, of us. And I didn't pay her to say that either. She did say full potential yeah. and it is the full potential now podcast. So awesome plug. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it just came up organically. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, um, I mean, I generally recommend because eating disorders are so perseverative and they require a multidisciplinary team going to a treatment program, um, you know, and getting an assessment are the best places to start because they will have all of the available resources. Obviously, there are outpatient therapists. I would say that um, if you are at a place, you know, where your symptoms are more stable, and again, that's really hard to self-diagnose, which is why I recommend a treatment program first. So there's a lot of really good treatment programs. Um, so I live in Chicago, so there's a few places, you know, that I recommend. There's a place called Renfrew Center in Northbrook that is really, really good. Um, Alexine Brothers in Hoffman Estates, they um, are great with treating not only eating disorders, but also co-occurring disorders, including substance abuse. They have a great substance abuse program. Um, Eating Recovery Center in Chicago that also has national locations. Um, the Emily program that's based in all in Minneapolis, they treat all levels of care, including adolescents. Um, you mentioned Rogers Behavioral Health that's um, up in Wisconsin. They also have a, a location that's in Skokie. So um, Rogers is also great because they also treat, you know, different co-occurring disorders, including like OCD and anxiety disorders as well. Um, McCallum Place in St. Louis, if you're down, you know, a little bit further in the Midwest, also specializes in eating disorder treatment. And in Chicago, there's also a place called the Awakening Center um, that does eating disorder. So again, my emphasis on going to a program is that they'll best be able to assess where you're at. At an outpatient level of care, again, I mentioned that, you know, a treatment team would include a psychiatrist. So if you're looking for a psychiatrist or a primary care doctor, you know, looking for someone that specializes in eating disorders. I can't really say that enough, including with outpatient therapists and registered dietitians. So there is um, a website, I believe it's called eatright.com. They have a range of registered dietitians. And so you can look specifically for an arm that specializes in eating disorders um, on eatright.com. Okay, so eatright.com, an important website. Is there anything like if I was just listening in, and I thought, well, you know, everybody's into this, like, taking stuff online rather than seeing somebody in person, like a place yeah. to start. Is there any, like, online, I have no idea if you know of any, like, like intro, like, assessments or just mini, you know, like, they have mini depression screens, mini anxiety screens. I mean, this stuff is out on the Internet. Is there anything that comes to mind for you that you might recommend for a listener? Yeah, um, there are two really great websites that have online resources. Um, one is called NIDA, so it's the National Eating Disorder Association. Um, and then the other is called ANAD, the Anorexia Nervosa Associated Nurse. So those are both really good online resources that not only have, you know, um, support groups that are offered, particularly ANAD has support groups, um, that I have certainly referred clients to. They're free. They are peer led support groups. 
um, and they can be located, they're national. So you look it up on the ANAD website to see what kind of community groups might be near you. Uh, and then the NIDA website is also really, really a great website that not only has a lot of different resources for potentially for clients. So someone who may say like, oh, I wonder if, you know, I might be struggling with disordered eating or an eating disorder. Here are some symptoms to look at, but important for loved ones. So, you know, we talked a little bit about how families are a really crucial part of eating disorder treatment. And so when you have a loved one, whether it's an adolescent or, you know, an adult or an older adult is that because eating disorders are a process, right? Just like with treating addictions, it's going, it's going to take time. And so your relationships will involve, you know, evolve alluded to. So having resources for caregivers and loved ones, whether it's friends or family members is also really important. And I like the NIDA website for, you know, not only having things like resources and connecting with others online, but then also books, things like that, which, you know, to, to kind of go old school, I think books are still a really important resource. Yeah, we'll include those links on um, on, on the site as well, so listeners could easily access those if, if they're curious. Um, and then anything else? Like, are you open, like, if any listeners wanted to reach out to you in particular, um, where they could find you or... Yeah. Um, so my practice is called Noble Tree Counseling. Um, I'm located in downtown in Chicago. Um, so my information is it's my uh, website is called nobletreecounseling.com. And then my email address and phone number are on there as well. Um, my email is just my first name, sheetal at nobletreecounseling.com. And then my phone number listed on there is 312-767-2058. And again, that's for clients who would be like at an outpatient level of care. So that's kind of my contact information. Um, and then like my bios on my web um, as well. Well, awesome. Awesome. So we're going to, any closing thoughts before I um, ask if you want to do my speed round? <laughs> the speed round is, well, five questions. They're pretty, they're yeah. kind of fun and easy. And then you just try to answer them as fast as you can. You can take a little bit more time with ones if you want. Um, so I don't know if you're game for that or not. I am. I, I am. It's I like Friday. Spr- be, I like to spring it on. Even yes. you should be game for everything and be open because that's that's about the possibility, right? Totally. You don't get possibilities unless we say yes to the opportunities. Um, anything else that you want to let our listeners know about before we jump into the speed round? I mean, you're, you're like inspiration of hope. Sheethal. I mean, like, (laughs) um, for anybody listening out there, I mean, like there is hope for you. You can start someplace. All it does is take one action, start someplace and reach out. You don't have to go through this alone. Um, and support groups and connection can really help guide you through the way. Absolutely. I, I can't agree with that more. It is. It will become less daunting to realize that there are others in connection who are with you, which again is the importance of support and groups, and you know, knowing that recovery is not something we do in an island. That it's something that you know we need others for. Yes. Yes. Totally. All right. Are you ready? Should I start? I'm with, ready. Start with the easy ones or the hard ones. Surprise me, Ted. All right. Surprise me. Um, what is your favorite band? Oh, 
favorite band? The Cure. I love 80s music. Like, love, love, love. You do not look like you're from the 80s. How did you start? How did you get into 80s music? Uh, because that was my era of music that I listened to. <laughs> yeah, the, I mean, The Cure is an awesome band. Uh, any favorite songs? Uh, I mean, Love Song, Pictures of You. All right. I just, yeah. Maybe it's because, you know, when I was in high school, I grew up listening to The Cure and and also, you know, Nirvana and all that, all that good stuff. <laughs> the last time there was good music. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so um, if somebody went to Chicago, what restaurant should they go to? What would you highly recommend? Oh, my goodness. I mean, Chicago's a huge food city. So I there's know. so many. This is like the hardest question ever. I mean, I would get off of Michigan Avenue for one thing. Like... The best places to eat are not just on Michigan Avenue. Like there are places. Um, so what's okay. So some of my favorite places, there's a place called crisp. If you like Korean fried chicken, amazing. Love it. There's a, uh, place called Bobtail. That's a homemade ice cream place right across the street. Crisp, which I also love. And there's an amazing place for Korean tacos. It's actually not too far away from either of those called Del Sol. Um, there is a place uh, called Owen and Engine that I really love that has a really good burger and fantastic drinks. Um, what else do I like? I really like Peace for pizza. It's not like a deep dish place, but I'm not necessarily like a deep dish person. I would say if you are a deep dish person, like Lou Malnati's is probably my favorite for deep dish. I would pick over like, you know, Gino's and uh, Giordano's, but that's. Nice. I also love a steak. So, I mean, you can't go wrong with like Capitol Grill and Ruth's Chris and, and Gibson's and Chicago Cut and Chop House. Well, there you go. You cannot, if you, if you go to Chicago, if you're a listener and you go to Chicago and you say, I don't know where to go, I mean, come on, give me a break. We just got like the greatest off the beaten track places, right? Not the typical tourist stuff. All right. Well, what has been one of your biggest insights in the field of counseling? Biggest insights. Or one of them. I know we're always being insightful counselors, but <laughs> yeah, something that like really as you've gone through the field, what has really opened your eyes? Um, a couple things. I think one is that, you know, the clients are really the clients are really the bus drivers of our work or their work, right? We can't even say it's because we are there to guide and support, but it's really the client's work that they drive the bus on that. And it's important for me as a therapist to resource a client and to meet a client where there's, where they're at. So it's not about my goals or my agendas. It's about what is it that you as a client want to work on. And I think that's an important perspective, particularly when it comes to behavioral issues, because there's something really concrete that a person may be trying to change, whether it's an eating disorder or an addiction. Um, the other insight that I, you know, has really come to me over time that I talked a little bit about in the podcast is really learning that, you know, all of these different struggles in eating disorder, whether it's alcohol or it's eating or it's gambling or it's isolating, these are all different ways of coping with pain and uncomfortable feelings. And we all have all of those same base feelings, whether it's shame or guilt or anger or jealousy, we all have them. 
right? And finding different ways to cope with that other than the food or the overspending or the gambling is just a part of the journey so that we can connect with our true purpose. All of those, those messy relationships with food and alcohol, those are distractions from the real work. And so I think one of the insights that, you know, is really helpful for me that I also try to talk to clients about is rather than judging your disorder, right? If I only didn't struggle with food or if it wasn't alcohol, it's not about the food or the alcohol, right? These are just different ways to cope with pain. Let's help you find a different way to cope with uncomfortable feelings or pain or uncertainty, most importantly. Awesome. That is so, I love it because it like really simplifies what the work is all about. It's not a bunch of diagnoses and a bunch of disorders, but it's like pain and being comfortable in your body and with your feelings. And how can we transition that from an addiction to something else, which is more healthy for you? I mean, you can read the DSM and all kinds of like complicated books, but this is sort of the way that, that my insight and my perspective works for me as a therapist. Awesome. All right. Question number four. What is your funniest moment as a lawyer? <laughs> I'm taking you back to your lawyer days. That's that's what I do. We go back to the past. Or anything like odd or weird happened where you're like, I cannot believe this just happened. Um, I just floored her. She doesn't. I mean, I'm taking her back to a place she doesn't want to go back to. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) No, you know what? I'm going to tell you a story. And I was about to say that it's embarrassing, but you know what? I'm actually, I don't think it's embarrassing. So when I was a litigator, particularly, you know, early on when I was in my 20s, um, there was a uh, male attorney who just really disrespectful to me on the phone. And I'd never spoke, like I'd never met him. Or he was opposing counsel on a case when I was doing um, civil defense litigation. And um, he swore at me and he called me a name that I don't particularly appreciate um, as just, you know, a power and control thing. Like he, he didn't even know who I am, but he thought that name calling an attorney was an okay thing to do. And I found it incredibly disrespectful and unprofessional and, you know, hurtful. Like that's not how people treat each other. Um, And he did it more than once. And I remember once when I told him not to speak to me that way, he hung up on me. And I went to court one day and someone said his name and I had seen like his picture before or something like that. Like I knew who he was. And I just realized I was like in the elevator. I think his name was like Jeff or something like that. And he was talking to someone else. I don't know if it was an attorney or a client or something. So we were walking out of the elevator together and I had this thought for a split second, like say something. And so I decided to. So I went up to him and I was like, oh, are you Jeff so-and-so? And And he was like, yeah. And I was basically, you know, I told him, I said, you know, I'm Sheetal Patel. We spoke on the phone before we, you know, we've had a case together together, and you called me these names. And that was really disrespectful. And that is not how you treat an attorney, whether I'm a female attorney or a young attorney or an Indian American attorney or not. And he was so surprised, sort of yelling, get away from me. Um, and like ran out the doors of the daily center. I don't even know if he left behind this person or not, but this is someone who is also probably like at least 20 years, my senior. So for many reasons, I would consider that not only funny moment, but something that, you know, to me also felt empowering at the time. Like you can't just treat me like this and pretend I'm a nobody on the other side of the phone. Just like how people do that online. Right. Like to pretend you can hide behind a screen and say all these 
things to people, right? Mm-hmm. Like when face to face, this person ran away from me. That's incredible. <laughs> what a great story. Way to stand up for yourself. Totally. Take it to him. I love it. And he's running down Michigan Avenue. I picture this guy with a briefcase running down Michigan Avenue. I've been discovered. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the final question is uh, one we sort of like, we'll retrace our steps, but um, a bit on this one. But if you had one sentence to say to somebody who is struggling with an eating disorder, um, what would that be? Always choose self-love. I love it. I love that. Well, Sheetal, we want to... Of course, a little bit, because I started to get tears in my eyes. I think I always think of this idea of, of always choose love, right? Even when you're approaching with others, like we want to lead with vulnerability and not lead with anger or lead with harm. And so I think the same thing applies to yourself, to treat yourself with that same tenderness and kindness and vulnerability and self-love before anything else, before self-judgment or shame, well, thank you for those kind words, words we can all live by. Well, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much for having me, Ted. I really, really appreciate it. I think that your podcast and the work that you do on Full Potential is amazing, and I feel really honored and privileged to be a part of it for a short second on this journey. Yeah. Um, it's you know, I'm really grateful for the opportunity and to be able to speak to listeners and hopefully bring more awareness to eating disorder work and provide some hope for improving and enriching everyone's, everyone's life that you can live out there. Thank you so much. Hey there, Recovery Nation producer John here again. Thank you so much to Sheetal Patel for sharing her time with us. Sheetal is also a board member of Women Everywhere, Partners in Service Project. Check them out at wechicago.org. If you liked today's episode, you can subscribe, leave a review, and listen to past episodes on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Stitcher. And visit fullpotentialnow.org for your free TED tools. This episode featured music by Pat Reinholtz and me, John Procruzzi. Thanks for listening.